Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. We need you at the station. Copy that. Board the windows. Try to hide. They're coming. They? Who are they? Today's Darkness Engulfed review takes a look at David Slade's wintry vampire flick 30 Days a Night, which is currently streaming on Crackle TV. Adapted from the IDW comic miniseries written by Steve Niles and illustrated by Ben Templesmith, 30 Days a Night focuses on Sheriff Eben Olsen, played by Josh Hartnett, and his wife Stella, played by Melissa George, as their town of Barrow, Alaska is under siege by a vampiric horde during Barrow's 30 Days of Darkness month. With the nearest civilization 80 miles away and the weather worsening, Eben, Stella, and a group of survivors attempt to survive a hellish month filled with darkness and death. And joining me to break down this ferocious vampire flick is returning friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back to the show, man. I appreciate it, man. I'm excited to dive into this. Yeah, me as well. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, like first and foremost, what about 30 Days a Night makes it a standout for you from kind of just normal vampire flicks? You know, first off, to be honest with you, I'm not a big vampire flick aficionado, if, if that's Neither true. am I. Um, but, I, you know, I like, I'm, I think everyone has an, a, an aversion to being in the dark for too long. Um, so the concept of, like, you're literally in the dark for 30 whole days, um, that's kind of scary in its sense. But when you add in the vampire aspect to it, um, I just think, again, this is a very unique film, um, even for something that was, you know, 10, 15 years ago now. Yeah, that's definitely the big thing for me that I think is immediate from the moment the movie begins. It's like, like you said, I'm not a big vampire guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not really... I don't like the portrayal of them usually just because of like the whole sort of seduction romanticism angle to vampires, right? It's very much about this person kind of using their influence and will over other people and like getting close and embedding themselves. And I feel that this portrayal is much more kind of like a primal portrayal of vampires. And I think that a lot of it, like you said, has to do with the unique setting, right? Mm -hmm. It takes place in the most northern part of Alaska, which is Barrow, Alaska, um, even though the film was filmed in New Zealand, we're kind of just like dropped into this world and it's this fantastic sort of just isolated setting. And it's like you said, there isn't something literally keeping them there. Like it's not sort of this normal scenario where it's like, oh, we don't have a boat off the island. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality of the people that are staying there. It's like we're 80 miles away from civilization. Mm -hmm. The only way to get out is a helicopter or a plane. It's the reality that they're choosing to stay there in the month of darkness. Right. And It's interesting because that whole concept of like, I'm going to willingly stay somewhere where it's dark for 30 days. It just feels inherently dangerous in a way that, I mean, if you weren't going to have like resources or reinforcements or whatever for like 30 days and it was daytime, Mm -hmm. that's one thing. If it was like a normal day night cycle, but Mm -hmm. just the idea that the, the landscape you're living in is plagued by darkness for 30 days. It just, it makes it inherently terrifying. Like you said. Right. And I mean, I think again, when we, slowly kind of eke into that movie and you know it starts off with them saying that the last plane is taking off from barrow for 30 days right and then um you know we hear how uh, i forget i think it was billy's uh plane or billy's helicopter like they took out all the wiring from it or he, he noticed that right so it's like you start to get this weird sense of like claustrophobia almost. Cause again, it's not that you're in an enclosed space. It's just that you're in the space now where you can't get out. And I think that's the, you know, the director does a really good job of pacing it to that effect. So by the time we see Ben Foster and, and the, not the zombies, the, the vampires coming into it, we already have this sense of unease and alertness where we're like, 
okay, there's not much we can do except survive for these 30 days. So these kind of boomerangs that happen here, um, I, I mean, again, I just, I, I think it's a, a really well, well done and well paced uh, movie into that effect. Yeah, David Slade, I think, does a really fantastic job of kind of just making the tone of the movie very ominous mm -hmm. before the vampires even show up. Yes. And I think Ben Foster's character facilitates that in a lot of ways. Obviously, Slade is in charge of kind of just the pacing of the opening of the film in which like it, you have this mass exodus of people that are leaving. Mm -hmm. They're leaving for very normal reasons, but essentially it's like, hey, this is your last chance to get on the lifeboat to head back to civilization. Mm -hmm. And even if they're not leaving because of a coming threat, which none of us know about at this point in the movie, it's still very ominous that like a significant portion of the town is leaving. Mm -hmm. There's even that brief moment between Josh Hartnett and uh, the other cop, I think it's Billy. Mm -hmm. And they stop at the sign that says, welcome to, uh, to Barrow, Alaska. And he changes the population tag. And I think it's like 200 people are leaving. Yeah. And he's like, why are you gonna check? Why are you changing that? Nobody's even gonna check. And it's kind of like this gallows humor almost, this realization that, hey, a certain portion of the population is leaving. Mm -hmm. And yet the population is gonna go down even more once they're gone because of the storm that's coming. And I mean, we have to highlight Ben Foster's performance as the stranger. Uh, his character doesn't even really have a name. He's just known as the stranger. Mm -hmm. But I love his character and I love his performance because he really is this kind of like prophet of doom, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of learn throughout the film that he's essentially a scout for the vampires. And there's that fantastic shot of him standing on the hillside and you, he's just like looking at the boat that's out in the water. And you're like, okay, I don't know the context of that relationship early on, but it's just so ominous because you can see the boat and it looks like it's disheveled or it looks like it's been, uh, it's taken some damage or wears. And you're like, how the hell did this guy get from that boat to here? Mm -hmm. And why does he look so fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> ben, I mean, Ben Foster, just from the beginning of the film, he just seems like a guy who has been through hell. Mm -hmm. And the longer we spend time with him, we see that it's, it's his choice to be part of that hell mm -hmm. and kind of just the way they flesh out his relationship with the vamps. Right. Um, also, I think we should, from here on out, refer to vampires as vamps throughout the rest of the sh uh, show. But, um, you know, to, to your kind of alluding on Ben Foster, I think some of the best uh, moments of this film, even though it was mostly early on, um, as we're going to find out here shortly, but um, just the just the unease that he brought every time he was talking, even what he ordered like a burger or uh, what was it? raw meat. Yeah. Raw meat. And the way he was talking to that waitress again, it's just, it wasn't scary. It was just uneasy and it kind of kept on building this kind of uneasy momentum within your head where you're just thinking of like, is he kind of responsible for all those dogs getting killed, right? Is he responsible for what happened to the helicopter? Is this something else is about to happen, right? Is he just a pawn in this scheme? So um, the way that they kind of present all this, um, I, I mean, again, I, I loved his performance. I thought his performance was probably the best out of all the characters in this movie. Ben Foster, I really don't think gets enough credit for just how precise he is with each of these kind of he's basically like a character actor in our day and age right he takes on these very hyper specific often super intense roles mm -hmm. and they they don't generally play a huge role in the film he's in the first 15 minutes of the film or so or 20 minutes but then he basically disappears and for a two-hour movie his performance would be very easy to get lost within the course of that movie right because it's kind of like yeah, he is the catalyst for basically being the scout for the vamps and that he's going to steal cell phones and destroy them so they can't call anybody. He's going to kill the guard dogs and he's basically like tearing down the defenses of people. But that's all within the context of 20 minutes. And then he gets killed by the head vampire who is known as Marlowe in the comics, but he's, they don't even give him a name in the movie. But uh, and he's played by Danny uh, Houston, who I want to get into later because he's also fantastic. But I mean, Ben Foster does such a good job of being intense yeah. and being very scary. But at the same time, he almost barely raises his voice. Yeah. It's just all about how he's able to unsettle with his kind of disheveled appearance, mm -hmm. the very ominous kind of prophet of doom ways that he's speaking to people and being like, oh, they'll be here shortly. Right. And, and uh, I think 
the sheriff's brother is like, oh, who's they or something like that. And it's like just these little uh, snippets of dialogue. Mm -hmm. are They're so purposeful and kind of destabilizing the survivors and the humans that are there. And then, of course, you get up close and personal to him when he's in the cell. And he's got these jangly teeth and he's just it's a very gross dude to look at in this movie. But it's so memorable every single time he's on screen. Well, so to that effect, I'm glad that you mentioned the the, the cell scene. He's in there. He's not handcuffed yet. And the way that um, the director and the, the folks in the lighting department set that scene up, um, it keeps he's standing almost kind of towering over. Um, I think it was uh, Josh Hartnett's brother, uh, Mark, uh, or sorry, Jake Olson, played by Mark Rendell. Um, Melissa George and then uh, Josh Hartnett and Mark Rendell's character's grandma. They were playing, I think it was Risk, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. And they're sitting in this like darker kind of area of the room and his cell is lit up and he's standing. So it, again, it just gives off this impression of him kind of towering over them. And that tone that he keeps using of, you guys aren't going to like what's about to happen. Like, again, it just... It is. It just brings out this kind of like a terrifying feeling while you're watching it. Because again, you're in a helpless state. They don't technically have any weapons with them, uh, and all the power and or, uh, ostensibly the power in the city, um, you know, just basically went out. So there's just so many different moving pieces of what's going on. Um, but you know, again, the the townspeople in themselves. You know, you mentioned there's 200 people left. Um, my one criticism, or I guess one of very few criticisms that I have of this movie is that there really weren't too many memorable characters outside of, you know, Ben Foster's character. I guess we could put Danny Houston's uh, like head vampire in there and then Josh Hartnett. Everyone else really isn't that important to the scene, no matter the, you know, the character arcs that they trying to put in that. What, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, the one character that I would say that's kind of like just a normal townsperson that stands out is, uh, I think his name's Brower, who's played by Mark Boone Jr. of uh, of uh, Sons of Anarchy fame. But I mean, his character is the most notable, obviously, because he has that massive action set piece at the end with the tractor that has the kind of revolving blade on it. Um, and he's kind of like the outcast from everybody. I mean, there's that great interaction early on with Josh Hartnett, who gives him a citation for having a vehicle that's leaking oil onto Main Street, which is obviously dangerous. And his partner, Billy, is like, when Josh Hartnett gives him the citation, he's like, what are you giving him a citation for? You could have just let him slide. I mean, everybody's leaving. It's not that big of a deal. And Josh Hartnett's character is like, well, every, if I, every time I give him a citation, it reminds him that just because he lives outside of town out on his own and he's kind of a loner, he's still a part of this community. Yep. And... That's a really, really great scene because it kind of, it tells you everything you need to know about both characters. It tells you this one guy is a loner who, I mean, to a certain extent, everybody's a loner. They're living in the most Northern part of Alaska, but they still have a community there. Right. There's still that sense of community and camaraderie and they have this established society that they're living in. And one guy that's there is like, yeah, I live in bumfuck nowhere with these other people and it's still too much close contact with other people. Mm -hmm. Like I still need to live away from this society to the point where I come into town, but I don't live in town. Right. And it also tells you everything you need to know about Josh Hartnett in that he is the law and order in this small town. And it would be very easy for somebody in that isolated location where you could do whatever you want. He could just sit in his office and drink all day if he wants. It's not like people are checking up on borrow Alaska all that frequently and being right. like, Hey, let's make sure that the sheriff up there is doing his job but he chooses to. It kind of just instills this idea that like, even at the end of the world, essentially, you have to have some law and order. Um, but I do agree that overall, a lot of the characters in this film, like the townsfolk, it's just meat. It's meat for the grinder, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they're just, their whole purpose is there just to display the fantastic vampires and makeup effects and how gory this movie gets. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, I mean, do we need more characters that are as defined? as a lot of them, um, as that small core cast are, you know what I mean? Probably not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, again, to your point, the fact that there were that many folks in the town, um, and we had talked about this um, through texting, 
my favorite scene of this uh, of the movie is that aerial shot when the the vampires or the vamps excuse me finally do come into town um, and they start like a full-on assault on the city right and then you get this aerial shot of like three or four people with shotguns and then everyone else is just getting torn apart right um, so it's just you know, it come it goes from basically they're sitting, uh, you know, there's townsfolks that are sitting at a diner eating. Ben Foster is, you know, saying all that creepy shit. And then not 10 minutes later, you know, there's an attack on one house um, on the, the periphery of the city. And then it's just a full on assault. So like they literally took that idea of zero to 100 real quick to yeah. part in this movie. <laughs> um, but I love that, you know, again, the the sort of like you know reeling us in like in a fishing kind of a analogy i thought that was a perfect way for us to get into like all the blood and gore because i think we can both agree there's some movies that elongate that time sometimes and that really i think loses the luster in a movie i think the way that um the director here really brought that on again just between um ben foster's performance and then that action sequence i was right into that movie within the first 20 minutes at that point yeah we'll get into kind of like the later part of the movie and the pacing that the movie takes which i think is probably my one of my only chief complaints of the movie but the first 30 minutes of this movie are so tight yes. and again it speaks to just david slade's ability to introduce us to this world that is very foreign. None of us, I would assume nobody is familiar with this setting. Nobody's familiar with this kind of geography in a certain extent and just the way of life there. And yet within the first 30 minutes, we know the key players, we know the setting, we know the temperament of those that are the most important. And then the way that they kind of insert the vampires and introduce them is so subtly done that again, it doesn't feel like a horror director just like blowing their load in the first 30 minutes of a movie and then by the end of the film you're like okay yeah what I've seen everything that this movie could possibly show me and I love that the there's this recurring kind of technique that they use with the vampires early on which is you see like a blurry outline of them yep. but you never necessarily see them in full detail mm -hmm. for the first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie you get brief glimpses of them but again like when the guy is leaving, when the guy that works at the uh, power plant leaves because he hears something, I don't know how he hears anything over the storm, but that's neither here nor there. But like he goes out to investigate and you see the vampires running circles around him basically because as they would with, as wolves would with any piece of prey, right? You want to disorient and then you want to track and everything like that and surround it. And they do that, but they don't feel the need to show us the vamps in full detail. It's just kind of blurry outlines of them. And that's something that they use periodically throughout the film especially when the town is under assault mm -hmm. and you see them on the rooftops in the background you see somebody running in the foreground and then you see a, a vampire on the roof in the background but it's blurry but you can still make out their movements and it's this portrayal of vampires that is terrifying in a way that again i'm not a huge vampire guy and it's because i never generally find them terrifying in this way they're they're creepy, they're unsettling, but this is a, probably the only vampire movie where I'm like, these are terrifying. And, you know, I don't want to reduce them down to something, but I would say that this is kind of like the 28 Days Later equivalent of vampires in that the vampires are their most primal representation. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think I love about this movie in general is, is that they're these fast, savage creatures that can communicate with one another and they don't have kind of the theatrical romanticized nature of most vampires. Right. Because that's the element that I hate in vampire movies generally where you have to listen to this suave and sophisticated vampire kind of like seduce all these people and he's very kind of theatrical with his monologues and that just doesn't do much for me. And this sort of just primal brutality mm -hmm. and they're just like, hey, we're the hunters and you're the prey. Mm -hmm and this is how it's going to be like i love that angle and the ways in which slade really kind of takes that from the comic mm. and really runs with it in a way that i mean no matter how many years later it is it's still just as affecting 100 percent. i mean i i really like that uh that analogy between this movie and 28 days later for vampires because again we've all seen the you know the american horror story kind of version of vampires where they're sexy and it's 
you know, I think it's more to do with kind of a sexual content than a horror contact in, in most circumstances. Whereas again, this movie, sure, there's some small element of a love story between uh, Eben Olsen and Stella Olsen played by Josh and uh, Josh Hartnett and Melissa George. But that is, uh, a, that is in nowhere near the, the main kind of uh, point of this movie, the driving force. Um, but so, you know, there was obviously a lot of different kills that took place in this, uh, and especially in that first 30, 40 minutes. What was the most memorable one for you in that initial kind of rush of, of deaths? And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Well, first off, I think we need to mention if we're going to talk about like kills and the practical effects in this film, mm-hmm. you have to give a shout out to Gino Acevedo, who is the practical special effects head on this Fantastic movie. I mean, guy, yeah. this movie has still some of the most brutal and bloody moments of, I mean, I don't know that a lot of people generally regard like early 2000s as a great time for horror, um, not to make an overgeneralization, but I mean, I see a lot of stuff like that online a lot. Um, of course, there's exceptions to everything, but... This film, I think, kind of highlights one of the best early 2000s use of practical effects. And again, like you said, returning an emphasis to straight up horror, especially for vampires. There's none of that sort of like romance element to it. And yeah, you mentioned the romance, which is like the structural foundation of the story, I suppose, for the characters. But that doesn't really do much for me. It's kind of like as bare bones as it could be in a lot of ways, which it's just there's just enough of it there to express character motivations but at the same time like it doesn't really bring out all that great of a performance or a narrative uh kind of avenues with the, between these characters to the degree where it's like super memorable mm-hmm. but i would say for like in terms of the kills from the opening kill of the dogs right i mean you get this very kind of like brutal visceral very quickly cut uh perspectives of the knife and then of ben foster stabbing the dogs and then you see the blood and then you see the aftermath of the dogs after that. Like, obviously, I hate the fact that a dog gets killed. But at the same time, the way it's not even so much like the act of violence itself. It's the portrayal of it and the quick cuts and the editing. And there's something very interesting in this film where a lot of the kind of traditional uh, establishing shots of characters and of the town. Those, I believe, are like traditional 35 millimeter. But then they use this uh, high definition camera for the action and then they chop it in a way that it looks like it's very sped up almost. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that really captures again, that sort of primalness of the vampires when they commit these acts of violence and Ben Foster isn't a vampire at that point. But I still think that that initial act of violence really sets the tone for the overall movie in a way that as the film ramps up and ramps up and we get numerous decapitations and we get people jumping off of roofs and uh, nibbling on necks and whatnot, like, it just again it comes back to the early pacing where Slade really lays things out in a way that he gives you an idea early on of what's in store for you but he doesn't show everything right away Mm -hmm. and he does that in a way that you're never bored with the scares or the scares and the practical effects and the gore never kind of like outstay their welcome Mm -hmm. if anything he just escalates things until the conclusion of the film in a way that is super satisfying but um, for you, what was one of the early kills that really stood out to you? Well, so real quick, I, I do have to mention, I know that um, the way that you structure like the titles for for these reviews, I think for this one, you should make a special case um, and you should say Daily Horror Habits, Vamps, Nibbling on Necks instead of Thursday <laughs> Night. I think that was a great way. I'll see what, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> really succinct way of explaining this movie. Um, but, um, I... For me, honestly, I mean, I guess I'm cheating a little bit because this is more halfway towards the end of the movie, but um, I thought the kill on Ben Foster was just, it was, again, it, was, it wasn't it was one of those things where you see too much of it, but the context of, like, he's done everything you've asked him to do, right? Um, he's gone, I mean, he's a human vamp hybrid, whatever the hell he is at that point, right? Um, but the idea that he thinks he's finally going to become one of them. And then, um, Danny Houston, just like, I, did he snap his neck or he came? He breaks his in? neck. Yeah. 
And Danny Houston's wife, the the heiress or whatever you would call her, she's just sitting there kind of next to him smiling. It was just, it was so eerie, but it was so satisfying at the same time. I, I mean, at least for me, um, again, there's bloodier and gorier moments like um, Bo Brower's death, I think is amazing. Um, but for me, at least that was kind of one of those things like, there's it's not even any hope if you partner with these guys or try and team up they will just destroy you to get to their end end goal well let's put a pin in the gore and the practical effects and we'll come back to some of our later favorite kills but i think we've been talking about the vampires as much as we have and we haven't really mentioned danny houston much and i think that he is absolutely perfect as being like the matriarch of the vampires in that yeah they have their own language and the language that they uh, created for the vampires is like based on tribal languages. Wasn't Latin? It, no. So he worked with a vocal coach, I guess, who took a lot of different little clips of tribal utterances, and then they kind of blend them all together. So it's nonsense, but at the same time, it's it sounds very authentic, right? In a way that I mean, it would be so easy for them to be like, yeah, just scream a lot. But the idea that they kind of have this made up language to go along with their kind of like roaring. Mm -hmm. I love because again, it kind of shows that these are not wild animals. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they're choosing to be as savage as they are because they are so well organized and they communicate. And it's why I separate them. Obviously I say that they're 28 days like in terms of their savageness, but they're nothing like zombies. Right. And that's a big distinction to make in that, they're choosing to do this. There's a line that uh, his name is Marlo on the IMDb page, but he never has that. They never identify him as that in the right. film. But Marlo has this line early on where he makes it clear to the other uh, vampires, you do not bite them. You have to decapitate them. We don't want to turn them. And that's a clear choice. He's like, fuck that. I don't see these as growing the ranks. I see this as we're slot. It's lambs that we're going to slaughter. Mm -hmm. And he even talks about at one point, I think when you said like the chick vampire or the female vampire that he has, it seems like they have some sort of relationship. Like that might be his uh, queen or whatever. Yeah. She gets burnt by the UV rays and he has to kill her or he doesn't have to, he chooses to kill her. And he says very clearly, he's like, what can be broken must be broken. Yes. And I think that that attitude Again, it speaks to just how pure evil they are in that they're choosing to do these things. Mm -hmm. It would be very simple for them to grab the human survivors and then to bleed them to get energy and blood, but then to have them join the ranks. But mm -hmm. they're not choosing to do that. They view these humans as basically like scum mm -hmm. and less than a food source. They're scum, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because it made me start to think about like their potential origin story. like. They didn't want to be, they're not like Ben Foster. They're disgusted by people like Ben Foster. And that's why in the end they kill Ben Foster, even though he does everything they want him to do. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I looked at that was like, oh, these people probably all became it accidentally. Or at some point there was somebody, there was a vampire that was like, oh, I'm going to grow my ranks and turn people. But mm -hmm. these people have been around for so long that they're just disgusted by humans and they don't view themselves as being remnants of people anymore well so to that effect too right there's a scene where there's like uh a majority of the townsfolks are in um uh what is it they're in like an attic right? yeah they're hiding in a like a crawl space yeah and they hear a woman outside yelling for help and josh hartnett's like you know she, she's obviously in danger but we can't do anything and he says look at the roofs and they're using her obviously as bait and at a point they realize they like the jig is up in that sense like no one's going to come out and help her so she starts getting like slashed and stuff like that from the other vamps and then at one point she like drops to her knees and she goes please god and uh danny houston's character looks up into the sky and then looks back down at her and goes no god and i just yes to your point right like they don't give a shit about humans. This is not a thing where they're, tr again, trying to, it's just a complete way of saying, we are everything that your nightmares thought of and worse, and we're not going to take any prisoners. And to that effect too, I mean, I think towards the end, like Josh Hartnett's character 
is a perfect example of what those people probably were like before. And then they ended up turning and then they formed this pack of vamps or whatever they would call them, right? Um, so again, I, I think you did a very good job of, of kind of analyzing that because that does make a lot of sense. He would have been perfect for them and he ends up being kind of the catalyst for the reason why they don't uh, harm everyone else. Yeah, I really love that moment where he's like, no God, because he's adding a lot of depth to a vamp character that he's able to do it in a way that's menacing. And it's like, again, like pure evil, but it's not theatrical. He's not giving these long monologues about anything. I don't think his dialogue is ever more than a sentence or two long, but you get the gist of everything you need to know about them. And it's, he doesn't have some master plan about overtaking Alaska or doing so, or like thinking about the context of vampires place in the world. Mm -hmm. He's just thinking about like, this is our food source. We have 30 days to do what we want and then we need to disappear again. Mm -hmm. And I love that it avoids this whole idea of kind of just like, Oh, we have to have some plan for the rest of the world or for the rest of society. And it's like, no, we're basically these beasts that, are here to eat this is our food source and we're going to take it one day out of the 30 days of night mm -hmm. at a time and i love that because it's so isolated and it really does allow his character to be in the moment more mm -hmm. and to not come off as like a fucking cartoon character right. like that's one of the things that i always struggle with when watching vampire movies in that it's like okay i get it man like i get your gist i don't need a five minute monologue about how you need to feed and how the the hunger for blood is overwhelming and consumes you. Right. Rather than giving us some kind of grandiose dialogue about that, in 30 Days of Night, we're shown that. We're shown that they've been stuck in that boat, which I think I referred to as like a plague boat, but it essentially is. It's like a boat of death that comes to the shore. Chances are they've been starved in there, no blood, no food source for a while, mm -hmm. and now they're here to feed. And they're going to let out all of that. It's like cathartic chaos, essentially. Mm -hmm. And... There's no better representation of that chaos than the tracking shot that you mentioned, where it's that overhead shot of the town fully engulfed into chaos because of the vamps attacking. And I think that that is probably my favorite shot of the film, like you had mentioned, just because the camera doesn't stop. It just keeps going. Right. And then you're seeing these little pockets of violence, but there's very rarely the camera lingers on any individual moment, mm -hmm. which kind of not only shows us the scope of the violence, but it shows that no special, no pocket of violence is special in any way. It's like, yeah, there's violence that's rampaging this town. And it's just a matter of fact, like you see, you'd mentioned a couple of guys have shotguns. And so like a couple of them shoot, uh, keep almost referring to them as zombies. That's why I shouldn't have made that 28 days <laughs> reference. Um, a couple of the vampires get shot. Mm -hmm. And then they maybe they get killed, maybe they don't, but the camera doesn't linger anywhere. It doesn't give you any sense of hope. It's like, okay, you killed one, but right over there, there's another 30 that are ripping people apart. And it is a really chilling scene that there isn't, again, a lot of kind of like hyper detail in those shots just because the camera doesn't linger anywhere for more than a second. Mm -hmm. But you still get the full scope of the carnage and the chaos unfolding that is really really memorable and i think mostly it's because of the set dressing of the blood mm -hmm. i mean i don't know about you but the blood in this movie is fantastic yeah. probably the best use of blood in any winter horror movie just because the way that it perfectly stains all of the environments and it goes from crimson to dark red yep. i mean it's so affecting and it is basically like set dressing alongside the snow that it is uh it is very effective in kind of just how dire the situation is i mean you see people get their necks next nibbled on so you know it's dire but it kind of just reinforces the savageness of the vamps mm -hmm. well you know that's this is a really random aside but that's why i'm always fascinated with history and specifically like uh war history is because every battle like you, like we were just talking about it's not just a battle it's pockets of stories of like this person had a shotgun he was able to hold off a vamp but 
there's another person who's maybe 10 feet away who just got tackled by one and now he has three people three of those vampires tearing them to shreds right so like the the other really cool thing about that is that it helps move the story along because then when josh hartnett's character or melissa george's character they're running around the town and they stumble onto people it makes it that much more believable because again 25 minutes ago the whole thing is on fire basically everyone's fighting of course there's going to be people that find their way into a small crawl space or underneath uh what would you even call that by the way like they're underneath the houses like above the dirt yeah just it's just like raised housing i mean they have i don't know why they have it there maybe it's just like this the cheap construction of uh houses there Mm -hmm. and just in alaska i don't know because i think they have that in well, it's in the Thing remake, the two th- or the prequel, the 2011 version, because there's a scene that it made me think of it while I was watching 30 Days of Night in that there's a scene in the Thing 2011 version where they're like climbing underneath them and then the monster is up, the Thing is under there and it grabs somebody. Um, but I, th- I, yeah, I had just remembered that when I was rewatching. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good point. That makes a lot more sense then. But um again seeing that and then having those situations come up later where there was a guy um he was hiding underneath uh, one of those houses and you could tell his eyes were a little off and then josh hartnett kind of focuses in on like his teeth and you realize he's turned to some extent right um and that i think you know that starts to bring on another piece of the puzzle and eventually josh hartnett utilizes it is what exactly is going on do you become immortal is this a temporary thing right are you just a soldier in the army um so you know the the myriad of ways that we saw that violence but it was done in an efficient way is very different i think than a lot of a lot of these horror movies that we see from the early 2000s which is just a free-for-all and there's not really (laughs) yeah there's nothing after that outside of just giving the audience the impression that there was just a massacre that happened right dude the black contact lenses that they wear are so goddamn creepy in this movie i mean the prosthetics that they wore, like the fingernails and the jacked up teeth, like those are fantastic. But uh, I was listening to an interview with Danny Houston who said wearing those contacts, it cuts off your peripheral vision, I guess. And so he said that that really played a big role in the physicality of the vamps. Obviously they had this um, like vampire training school that they did to kind of like teach everybody how they should behave. Is that in Romania? What's that in Romania? Yeah. But they were saying, like, don't shuffle like zombies, because even though we've made a lot of comparisons to zombies, these are, don't behave like zombies in any way. Right. But they have to be distinctly unique as vampires in the sense that they don't move in the way that humans do, but the way that they move is not inhuman. So it's this weird kind of hybrid best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. And so having the contacts in, he said that cut off his peripheral vision, so he literally had to turn his head to see. And you see all of the vampires do that to a certain extent. When they hear something, they literally like have to turn their whole body and look instead of kind of just moving their head. Mm -hmm. And it gives just another layer of just the uh, physicality in bringing that role to life in a way that it really does make it seem like they are the ultimate hunter or the ultimate predator, much like an animalistic side to it. But then at the same time, you see that they do still have some human qualities to them that, I mean, if anything that still resembles a human is ultimately going to be more terrifying, right? Mm -hmm. So that whole idea of like, they look human and they have some human characteristics, but then the closer you get to them, you realize, oh, there's like no semblance almost of humanity here. Mm -hmm. But um, in kind of returning back to some of our favorite kills Mm -hmm. in the film, because it really can't understate just how phenomenal the practical work is here. I mean, the swing decapitation, there's numerous decapitations in the movie, but you had mentioned that Josh Hartnett comes across one of the survivors that's underneath the house. And then we learn that he's actually a vamp and he's just turned. And so he gets all caught up in the chain link swing. And then Josh Hartnett has to take an ax to his head. Like that decapitation is so good in the portrayal of it, obviously, because you don't see the impact right away. And this comes back to David Slade's pacing. You hear, or you see rather, Josh Hartnett swinging the axe multiple times and then you hear the head hit the ground first mm-hmm. and then it cuts away to seeing the body tangled up in the swing and then you see the head on the ground mm-hmm. which is fantastic because 
it's more about hearing it and you're seeing the action without seeing the impact. Right. So that way, when you get the next two in instances of decapitation, they're not, uh, you're not desensitized to it mm -hmm. because then you have the little girl, obviously it's a child and you have to decapitate a kid. So that's a whole nother fucked up level of, Hey man, we're not only decapitating men and women, we're decapitating kids, which kind of just shows this rather overwhelming bleak atmosphere. So that takes on that decapitation takes on a new sort of emotional level to it. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're not going to see the impact on that, but you do see again, the younger brother kind of like how fucked up he is off of having to do this horrific thing. Right. But then by the time that Billy gets decapitated, which is the third and final one that you're still not desensitized to, because you actually see the impact as it's happening to the degree where he gets the ax in his neck three times. And then you literally see the head flop off his body and it's still attached, which is a fucking wild practical effect. But I mean, Slade really knows how to sort of like, wet our beak as it were mm -hmm. up until the ult I would say that's like one of the climaxes of the film in terms of the gore and the kills but then of course we get that final one and the final fight sequence which we'll get into but I mean at no point do I feel that it's overdone or I'm kind of like yeah man that was cool the first three times you did it I mean right. there really is this pacing to almost every aspect of the movie that I think is really well done and now, as soon as I say that, I'm thinking, well, actually, one of my criticisms is the middle portion of the film. But um, I think in terms of the gore, like the pacing is really well done. What did you think about that? Very much so. And again, it's not I think the biggest piece to this is that it's not overdone. Right. Because, again, we've all seen those movies where it starts off. It's just a normal horror movie. And then all of a sudden it feels like you know, the Nickelodeon goo instead of that, it's literally just buckets of blood that they're pouring into the movie, basically just to make it gory for gory's sake. There's a scene where um, uh, one of the townsfolk, they, they have a dad and he's like senile or uh, I forget what he had, like Alzheimer's or something like that. He ends up like escaping from the, ha the attic and house area that they're all holed up in. And, and that son runs after his dad um, and uh, Melissa George, uh, Josh Hartnett's uh, girlfriend in that, um, she's like, you can't do this. She gets pushed to the ground, right? And then you basically see this picture of him outside trying to look for his dad. And you can see in the background, like you said, you start to see like little quick runs from like, you know, between the house and stuff of those uh, vamps. And you don't actually see him die. You hear it. You hear them dragging him away. You hear a bunch of screaming and then it stops and then it cuts to the next scene. But like those small moments, they could have very easily killed him in the middle of the street, blood everywhere, right? It's freaky, but that I think helped with the pacing of all that, the blood and gore, just because again, you don't actually know how you're going to die in some of these situations. It could be as simple as, you know, you walk in the wrong house, one of those vamps jumps on you and bites your neck, or it can be you get pulled in under one of those buildings and there's 50 of them and they're just going to tear you to pieces, right? Um, so again, the way that they presented it and the way that it was handled, I, I got to give them A plus in, in terms of like the violence and gore aspect of it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really great point too. In that even the smaller moments where you're just left, you know, their fate and you don't necessarily have to see it, but their death is important to kind of pushing the narrative forward to a certain extent. Cause yeah, they're supposedly surviving over the course of 30 days of night. And so they're going to start losing people pretty consistently. But, um, I think that's a good part for me to kind of bring up probably my chief complaint with the film. Cause this is definitely my favorite vampire movie, but in terms of just like overall being a horror movie, I love the movie. It's just that the sort of the survival 30 days of night element never necessarily sells me on that. It, yeah. The film never sells me on that nearly as well as I think it intends to. And for me, that has to do, I think, partially with the length of the movie. Mm -hmm. So it clocks in at just, I believe it's an hour and 55 minutes or something like that. Yeah. And you would think that with a movie that's almost two hours, it would be paced in a way that that 30 days of surviving feels like it's earned or it feels like you can actually kind of sense some semblance of time passing. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this movie, I feel that it definitely drags yeah. to a certain extent 
in the middle half of the portion, like right after they um, they go to the quick stop or whatever, the, the convenience store to get food. Like right after that, I feel there's a good like 10 or 15 minutes that could have been cut down a little bit in terms of like, did we really need that guy chasing after his dad? Did we need that whole sequence for that not to play out in a bigger way? Right. I would understand that's like, I think that that moment is great in that it helps facilitate like, yeah, people are getting killed off, but I feel that for that death to have had even more weight, the father son actions put everybody else in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Like then that kicks off. Oh, Hey, now they know who we are. We need to escape and we need another distraction. Like, did we really need the UV light sequence? I love that effect, right? but couldn't that have been compartmentalized maybe into another series of events rather than have, a whole five or 10 minute like chase sequence when they could have had the UV light attack and uh, Boone's character taking the tractor and blowing himself up and blowing the bar up and everything. Could that just been compartmentalized into like one 10 minute scene or one seven minute scene instead of like 15 minutes of narrative? Mm -hmm. Like that whole element, I think adds a little bit of bloat to the film and the just general overall like survival aspect never really comes across in a way that feels indicative of like a long period of time passing. Right. Don't see them rationing food or anything like that. The other thing that I, I have an issue with those kind of situations and the walking dead is a really good example of that. They'll be out in the forest for, I mean, I guess I'll put it in this case. They were essentially in an attic for two weeks, right? And there is a mention of like you, uh, I think it was uh, Melissa George's character who mentions like, you can use the bathroom, but don't flush because it'll make noise, which is like that. Okay, I understand that's logic. I can get it. That's a horrifying thought of like seven people using one restroom doing that, but that's the side. But like, you don't see like, you don't see extra hair growing on Josh Hartnett's uh, face, right? Like, his mustache getting longer, right? Like small things like that, looking more disheveled. They're like rationing their food. Hey, we only have six pop tarts left or whatever. Like I definitely wouldn't have made it 30 days a night, by the way, let's just put that out there. Uh, Um, I don't think either of us would have. I, I, I put more money on you than me, buddy. (laughs) But, uh, but that being said like that, I agree with you on, you know, I think if you are going to make it, if that's good, the survival aspect is going to be for 30 days, there should have been at, le- at least a little bit more emphasis on like, okay, like, do we have, how much food do we have left or how much water or something like that, right? Whereas again, it's mostly if they're, when they're looking, at, when the scenes are in the attic, it's either there's some sort of an internal issue or they're looking outside and trying to figure out if they can run somewhere else. There's not actually uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that they're dealing with that. Also, if they're going to like, there's that brief moment where they're having this conflict and there really is, that could have been the jumping off point for them to be like having that kind of, um, I don't know, I guess you would call it, I don't know if it'd be a trope, but it's like a recurring overall kind of just thematic of horror films where ultimately man is the worst monster of all. We will destroy ourselves through infighting. You see it in every single zombie thing that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. And I think that it applies here in that we have that moment where they're having that infighting. And if they get too fucking loud, they're going to attract the vampires. Or if somebody leaves, you could put the rest of the group at risk because then the vamps will follow you back to the house or they'll see where you left from and know that everybody else is there. And we have that brief moment and then it never really goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like what was that dedicated towards if it wasn't going to preface your hideout falling apart Mm -hmm. or something to that extent. Like, I feel that had the film circled back around or placed more emphasis on that happening, that time would have been justified. Mm -hmm. Whereas that is the beginning of the portion of the film that I think is probably the weakest. And I think it adds more bloat to the film than necessarily there needed to be. Um, Again, I, I say bloat and I say it needless, but I think overall, there's only like the middle, I don't even know if I would say the middle portion, maybe like three fourths of the way through the movie that is like that. At the same time, I'm never bored with the film. And I think that that is a result of just the way the film looks. Because I don't know about you, but I absolutely adore the way that this movie looks. And it is so unique in the presentation in a way that no other movie is. I think especially like the whole concept of it being taking place 
obviously 30 days of night. That's a big fear early on that, okay, so everything is going to be pitch black. You're not going to be able to see shit. But the way that they went about filming this movie and it giving it this kind of like light blue, gray tinge to everything, mm. you're not washing everything out in black. Right. And there's a couple of reasons for that, which we can get into. But I mean, the way that this movie looks is so precise and it looks so different without looking strange. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it looks very unique, just the portrayal of a lot of these quote unquote pitch black shots. And yet you never lose track of anything that's happening to the degree. I used that example earlier where the zombies are in the, I did it again. The vampires are in the background running on the roof and they're out of focus and it's nighttime, obviously, but you never lose track of anything that's happening. Right. There's just enough detail in the way that they did the post coloring and everything. You're never lost in anything that's happening. It's never kind of this idea that, oh, well, they're shooting it too tight and it's too dark so you can't see shit. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's none of that because of the technicality that went into pulling this movie off. And that really is the entirety of why the movie works. Because if you have those issues, this movie just becomes 30 days of I can't fucking see a single thing that's happened. And right. it avoids that in spades. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I think I, I think if you if you look at it from that perspective of it's going to be dark for, like sincerely dark for 30 days, you're not going to have any kind of a you're not going to be able to really see what's going on, but that like, you know, for, for me, it's like, you know, when it's dawn and there's like that, like dark blue hue in the sky, almost that's kind of what it seemed like. And that again, it made it authentic to actually see that versus just like, there's random lights here and there that are actually flickering or something. Um, so no, I, I totally agree to your point on that. Yeah. So some of the ways that they actually pulled off that look is that, A lot of the exterior shots at night were filmed inside, actually. It was filmed inside of like an old Air Force base, like a hangar, and they rebuilt sections of it so they could control the snow Mm -hmm. because that's obviously a lot more difficult to film outside in an uncontrolled environment. But then some of the exterior shots, they filmed some of the exterior shots that occur at night. They actually filmed in the daytime. And then they used like a day-night process over it. So like the car assault scene, Mm -hmm. when the zombie jumps on top of the car and then Josh Hartnett shoots it through the ceiling, that was filmed during the daytime. And then they did the darkness post-processing over it. Mm -hmm. So that way you made it seem obviously like it happened at night. And again, that is a scene that is supposed to take place in like pitch dark. And yet it's never washed out. You can tell 100% of the time what's happening. You can see very clearly the sort of physicality of the vampire and of the two of them inside the car in a way that you're never lost. You're never kind of like, okay, this is like very jarring. It's just people screaming in the darkness. Never have that issue. And that's a very technically difficult scene to capture. And another way that they did that, especially like when the power gets shut off in town was, is that they used this thing called a, uh, like a moon box Mm -hmm. to recreate uh, natural moonlight. And so by doing that, it creates a light source that is not a natural to the outdoor environment, but at the same time, it doesn't light it too much. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, it doesn't make it too dark. And so that's what, how they really regulated the kind of light sources that resemble something that's natural because, I mean, we, we're, you and I are both from New England. You ever go outside and you look out in like a part of the neighborhood where there aren't a lot of streetlights, you see the moonlight bouncing off of the snow in the wintertime, right? And that's like a very kind of haunting thing sometimes when you're looking at it. And here, even though the lights are all completely out, it's never kind of like, oh yeah, that's just fake lighting so we can see what's going on. It feels very natural and authentic to the setting. And I mean, that again is just a parameter that David Slade was conscious of and kind of like getting his gaffers and everything in order to make this as hostile of an environment but as natural feeling as an environment as you could have for this film no 100 percent. i mean again when we get to the end there right um i think i think all of that plays a piece into to why this movie is so good um i think this is probably one of the more underrated uh movies in the 2000s like 2000 2010s um what was your thought on on the ending right i mean we go through the you know the billy situation which by the way actually in retrospect i think billy's death as a whole is probably um the best one um 
just because of he saves uh, Josh's character, right? And then that the special effects of his hand being crunched off, basically. Oh, so fucking gnarly. And then he starts turning. Like, just that back-to-back is just fan-fucking-tastic. Fan I love every second of it. Because, again, you see the the difference in how everybody reacts and how everyone's kind of grown now into like that we need to do this. It's not a question of like, we're, we we're trying to be humane. It's like, we need to do this for our own survival. Um, and then transposing that with how everyone reacts to when Mar- uh, Josh Hartnett's character injects himself with the vampire blood or whatever it was. Right. He gives um, himself that, uh, that vamp transfusion. Yeah. That's, I guess that's what keeps uh, the rich folks young nowadays. But uh, <laughs> um, but th- again, just that 10 minutes, there was so much that happened. And, and it's it ca- it's a catalyst to like the, the ending scene. Um, I, I think that was, again, one of the more pivotal moments in the movie. And they just did a great job of executing it. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a fantastic sequence. And, you know, I would probably give the movie like a full star just for that Billy sequence, just because (laughs) it's so well done. And that's a fantastic point that you mentioned in that it's it's very apparent that nobody we don't have that moment where it's like, oh, we could still save him. It's like, no, dude, that head is fucking coming off. (laughs) And that Billy actor doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the film. And yet he sells that scene like a motherfucker. It like from clutching his nub which just got shredded in agony to then transitioning from a, like a human scream to that guttural vamp scream Mm -hmm. is so haunting and chilling in a way that it literally gives me shivers just because you realize what he's turning into. And then heart Josh Hartnett's character is like, you know what? There's only one solution. And then of course we get that fantastic display of uh, practical effects again, when that head has to come off. Mm -hmm. Um, But even the final kind of like alpha versus alpha fight between Marlo and, um, and even is fantastic, right? You get this very animalistic fight. Again, you get that physicality from both of them, but you also get Marlo, who is the alpha of his own pact. Mm -hmm. And just the way that he positions himself above others throughout that entire scene and how the others kind of look on and uh, give him support and all that and how he starts toying with uh, Eben. And he's just like, this guy has no idea how to use these powers. He's an abomination or whatever. And then you see that, of course, Eben realizes that he is playing with him. Right. So then he uses that against him and shows him like, actually, I'm the top dog here. And then, of course, we get that fantastic kill where he takes his hand and literally punches through the, the back of the guy's head from his mouth. I mean, that is such an insane display of practical effects yep. that, I mean, again, I would give like a half star just for that because it's so phenomenal and it's so unexpected. And how often is that in horror movies where you go through a majority of the film where there's these brutal kills, bloody and gory as all hell, and then they're still able to shock you in the last moment of the film with something. Yeah. The film capitalizes on that third act in a way that it's like one of my soapbox things where it's just like the third act is usually the weakest, and yet here, if anything, Slade is building and escalating the film up until this point that you, as soon as you think like, oh, he's run out of his, his bag of tricks is empty, you get to this next kill and it's like, dude, are they going to top this in a few minutes? Because apparently there's no slowing down the sort of uh, the gore train, as it were. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that specific scene just because that reminded me kind of uh, for our Game of Thrones uh, fans that, that watch you, uh, the Oberlin, uh, Oberlin and uh, the mountain when they fought. And I got that same kind of, I mean, I've, I've seen it already. So I, I understood what was going to happen, but I started thinking of just like, I, I know Josh Hartnett's going to win, but there really is a chance that he isn't. And, and that would kind of be on par with how this movie is going anyways. Cause again, I, I think we all agree that there are certain horror movies that they just do way too much uh, to make sure like the good guys always win. And this was definitely a scenario where I would be totally satisfied if at the end they actually did end up killing Josh Hartnett and his brother. And like maybe there was one or two survivors somehow made it out until the sun rose. But the way that, you know, there's that scene, there's that moment where um, 
uh, Danny Houston's character thinks like, okay, it's over. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna kill him now. And then Josh Hartnett punches through his mouth. Uh, like, I, I mean, again, I, I tried to remember what I thought of when I first watched this when it was 14 years ago. Um, obviously, I don't remember it, but you still get that sense of like, holy shit, that really just happened. And that's, I think, th that is the essence why people watch those types of horror movies and thrillers and action movies is to get that moment of like, holy shit, that just happened. And David Slade and his entire production team all the momentum that they build up to that moment. I mean, you know, I, I I never stood up and started clapping for a movie, but those are the types of moments that I would do it if I did. Um, just because again, that that's a perfect crescendo uh, for the movie. And it's just a great way to go from, there's no real hope for these humans to like, no, we've actually adapted now and we will defeat you even if we have to lose a josh hartnett in the process which i think we can all agree is fine with yeah definitely and i think that it's fitting that he has that triumph that saves the day mm -hmm. and yet it's his last day right i mean it's the idea that the movie ends with him in his wife's arms and he's being essentially burnt to a crisp by the sun because it comes out and i mean i love that ending even if I, I don't th their romance doesn't really do anything for me. It's like, yeah, it's serviceable. Right. It does. It serves their characters. It serves the overall narrative. It adds a bittersweet moment to that victory that he has over Marlo. But at the end of the day, I don't know. It necessarily has the emotional pull that it does, but I think it's a fitting ending because then again, it's like, okay, we know that these horrors are out there. What's going to happen next year. Yes. Is that one of many boats? Is that, was that all of them from wherever they came? Is there a nest somewhere? Is there like a vamp nest over in uh, Scandinavia or in uh, Romania or whatever? And it's kind of like it opens up the universe in a way or it leaves the 30 days of night universe open in a way that is intriguing to me. And they made a sequel that came out and I believe 2010, which I haven't seen, but I was reading is not nearly as uh, favorably received, mm -hmm. but it's intriguing how the first film ends because it does leave it open to a certain extent. And this is something that the comic series that the film is based on has explored in a lot of ways. And I'm actually going to uh, try to pick up a couple of the comics just like to read and see how they expand on the universe. Cause I know there's a whole another mini series where people come back to the town or there's a survivor that comes back or something to that extent. But I mean, I think that this film does such a good job of telling the story that it needs to tell in a way that, is so drastically different and almost like redefines the subgenre and horror for me in a way that I can't claim that many horror movie, like monster centric movies like this do. I mean, every year we get people that take like a classic one and try to do it, whether it was like the mummy with Tom Cruise, which we'll just leave that as it were, uh, or like the Wolfman or the invisible man. Recently we saw that in 2020, then redefining that and then bringing it to life in a new and exciting way. And them taking vampires and applying this sort of new physicality to them. Yes. It makes them interesting because it's new, but also it make it taps into what is so important in horror movies. It is re-injecting the fear into something that only, I can only speak for myself, but it sounds like you as well. It's like, yeah, they're injecting fear into something that I've never associated fear with before, which is vampires. I've always associated them as these long monologue seductive types and that has never been all that terrifying to me but when you tell me that there are a pack of vampires that move like zombies to a certain extent and yet they still have all of their uh communication and mental facilities about them if anything they're even more cunning mm -hmm. that makes that much more terrifying for me in a way that i hadn't seen before in a vampire film and if anything it makes me want another movie like this or potentially maybe another sequel in the right hands this time, hopefully right. something that uh, maybe we'll get sometime in the future. But I mean, yeah, this for me is a film that I'm surprised it took me so long to revisit it just because of how strong it is at what it sets out to do. And it achieves it almost flawlessly for me, at least. Yeah. And I honestly, I can't add too much uh, to what you just said. I, I very much echo 99% uh, of what you just said there. Um, the only thing that I, I really want the listeners to, or the, the other thing that I want listeners to take away from this, and people say like horror movies are never real in this kind of sense, but I have seen a lot of articles about North Korean fishing boats, like ghost fishing boats, like washing ashore. 
do we have any concrete knowledge that this isn't happening over there? Probably not. So I just... Last thing, and then we'll wrap up, but I think that that gets at the root of Marlowe's plan. Again, he doesn't have this kind of world domination cartoonish villain plan, but they get to a certain portion in their assault or their siege on uh, the town where it's like, hey, there are survivors and we're running out of nighttime. Mm -hmm. And Marlowe at one point says like, we have to destroy the entire town now because we've spent all this time making humans doubt our existence, which has allowed us to operate freely within the world. And so now there can't be any doubt. They, this has to look like an accident. And essentially that is a great comparison, I think, to the example that you gave and that it's like, yeah, if the fishing boat turns up and everybody on board is gone or dead, but there's no bodies. Okay. You can, sure. They probably drowned or whatever, but there's still a seed of doubt that could grow. And whether it's practical or it's in, or whether it's probable or improbable, the seed of doubt is still there. Yeah. And somebody could attribute something to that that potentially happened. And so this whole idea where it's like, okay, there's no proof that we were here. So that continues the sort of mysticism that we've worked towards. I mean, that's a scary concept. And that's a concept that, again, it makes it an intriguing premise that now, what's going to happen now that there's a, a handful of survivors that could say, hey, we got attacked by vampires, but the entire town is destroyed. Right. Who's going to believe them? Are people going to believe on this is just like people that are traumatized? Or is somebody going to be like, well, maybe, hey, maybe there's something going on here. Right. Something a little fishy. I mean, from all my uh, years of, of experience of watching Law and & Order and Law and & Order SVU, I know that there's good detectives out there, so they'll ask those questions. But yeah, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, I guess we won't. But uh, the one thing I do know is I'm glad that you uh, came on to chat about 30 Days a Night because this is definitely a movie that I was long overdue a rewatch of. And it, this conversation and revisiting the movie has definitely uh, re-sparked my love of this film because it's one of the best, I think one of the best horror films of the early 2000s in just terms of what it's able to, uh, what it sets out to achieve and what it actually does just by backing it up with uh, David Slade's fantastic vision for vampires. But as always, man, it's a pleasure talking horror with you. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.